Our uh, New Testament text is James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have work? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's very good to be with you this morning. Again, um, after the last year, we, we certainly don't take for granted the opportunity to gather together here in one place. And as it's the Word of God that God uses to create, to craft, to call, and to collect His church, let's come before Him together in prayer as we prepare our hearts to look at His Word. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is. We thank you that in your word, you have revealed yourself and what you have done for us in your Son, in our Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to the good news of Jesus Christ that strengthens and fills our hearts. We ask this in his name and the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, the passage that we're looking at today says a lot about faith. Uh, Last week's sermon also talked about faith, and in many ways, this is a continuation of that same passage. But if we're really going to wrestle with, if we're really going to grasp what James has to say about faith, we have to go back to what faith is. And if you remember from last week's service, we appealed to a definition of, of faith put forward by a, actually a 17th century 
Dutch theologian Petrus von Maastricht, and he said something very important about faith. He says that a faith has both a means and an end. Faith includes both what we desire most and how we are to get that thing we most desire. So then to speak of a faith is to speak of a particular how and a particular what. And towards that end, von Maastricht laid out the following requirements, the following criteria for a saving faith. He said, No one can receive Christ as his mediator who has not previously received God as his highest end. So to speak of saving faith is to speak of a faith that has Christ as the means, as the mediator, as the how, and to speak of God as the end, as the what, as that which we most fully desire. And to be sure, this is the specific kind of faith that James himself calls us to. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2, James called us to embrace faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But here James tells us that there are other kinds of faith, faiths that, that do not save, faiths that shun rather than serve the neighbor. Recall that James asks us point blank, can that faith save him? And this must mean that there are faiths that have their ultimate end, their ultimate object, and something other than God. And it's important to remember that as humans, we all seek an end. We all have an overwhelming desire that somehow, some way directs every aspect of our life. Even if we can't articulate it, each of us has an answer to the question, what is life about? What are you seeking? And that's as much as to say is that we all have a faith. We all have some ultimate object of faith. And the question is, what is it? And that brings us to our first point, faith in the self. It's important to note that our words, our actions, they communicate perhaps explicitly or perhaps implicitly what it is that we most deeply desire. And at first glance, if we look at all the different things that humans do, it might look like there are quite a few different what's, quite a few different ends, quite a few different things that we're ultimately seeking. But the Christian tradition, at least as far back as Augustine, has said that ultimately there are only two candidates for this ultimate post. There's the love of self and the love of God. And so then if faith requires an ultimate end, there's also two ultimate faiths. Do you have faith in yourself, whereby you're seeking yourself as the highest end, or are you seeking God? Is he the object of your faith? Is he your highest end? And that might sound simplistic, but bear with me. Consider, for instance, the kennedy Souter o'connor plurality opinion, which was issued by the Supreme Court in 1992. And this statement reads as follows, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. So that is to say, each human self here is understood as that which can define three foundational things. The meaning of existence, the meaning of the universe, and the meaning of the mystery of life. Now, this may or may not be the right way to approach the self uh, as a governing authority in a pluralistic society like the United States. I'm, 
I'm not an expert in political science or legal theory. That is way over my vocational skis. But what I want to look at here is this statement in a theological lens. Because theologically speaking, this statement gives the human selves abilities that the Christian tradition has uniquely reserved for God. This statement is telling us that the source, the locus, the location of meaning ultimately rests in the human individual. It's no longer outside of us. We alone are the ultimate source of meaning. And it's very common to hear these sentiments in our modern milieu. We might look at a couple different public intellectuals here. As the literature professor and mythologist Joseph Campbell writes, quote, the meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Or we could look at Anais Nen, the um, author and the memoirist. She writes the following, quote, there is not one big cosmic meaning for all. There is only the meaning we each give to our life, an individual meaning, an individual plot, like an individual novel, a book for each person. Lastly, consider a quote by the cosmologist, the scientist, Carl Sagan. He writes the following, The significance of our lives and our fragile planet is then determined only by our own wisdom and courage. We are the custodians of life's meaning. And I'm sure Carl Sagan is an absolutely excellent scientist, but it's important to note that this statement is not a scientific statement. This is a deeply theological statement. We are the ultimate source of meaning, and the meaning is not out there. It's in us. We are the custodians of life's meanings. But it's interesting, if, if we think about the work in particular of, of C.S. Lewis, he actually anticipated quite a bit of this, um, these sentiments. If we look at his set of lectures, The Abolition of Man, uh, he begins the book by looking at a particular school curriculum, and he calls this book the, the Green Book. And one thing that the Green Book does is it looks at an account put forward by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And this is where Coleridge is standing at a waterfall, and there's two people standing next to him, and one of the persons says, this is pretty. And the other one says, this is sublime. And Coleridge says, the person who said this is sublime is right. The waterfall is inherently sublime. But in response, the authors of this green book, the authors that the book Lewis is critiquing, they say the following, quote, When the man said, this is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was really saying was, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime or I have sublime feelings, end quote. And C.S. Lewis sees this as a problem. He contests that the waterfall does not inherently have a meaning. He contests that all I can say about the waterfall is the effect that it has on me, that it's neither pretty nor sublime, but all I'm doing is describing the way that I feel. The philosopher Charles Taylor also describes this process, but he calls it objectification, he says, quote, to objectify a given domain is to deprive it of its normative force for us, or at least to bracket the meanings it has for us in our own lives. 
And basically what Taylor is saying there is that to objectify anything that we find in reality is to deny that something outside of us makes a claim upon ourselves. To deny that it can have any meaning other than the meaning that I choose to put upon it. Recall again the Supreme Court statement, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. So by Taylor's definition, this very statement just is the objectification of all reality. It's the objectification of the waterfall, but it's also the objectification of the neighbor. It's to say that nothing or no one can ever make a claim upon me, because to do so would infringe upon my right to define the meaning of existence, of the universe, of human life. To make such a claim would restrict the meaning that I myself can put upon things. What does this have to do with James? Because if you remember right, James asks the following question. Can that faith save him? James is telling us that there are other kinds of faith. And he demonstrates the contours of this other kind of faith in the following scenario. Look with me at James 2, 15 through 16. James writes the following. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and feel filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James tells us that the hallmark of this faith is the affirmation that the neighbor makes no claim upon me. Just as the waterfall has no inherent meaning, neither does the neighbor. The neighbor is not inherently one that's meant to be loved or served. To say that the neighbor that I'm confronted with should be loved and served is to undercut my right as a human, human self to define the meaning of existence, the universe, and human life. So goes the waterfall, so goes the neighbor. We may feel that the neighbor should be loved, but when I say that, I'm only making a claim about myself. It's, it's really nothing more than my feeling, my own personal intuition. I may feel that the neighbor should be loved, but that's really no more important than saying the waterfall is pretty. I might say that the neighbor should be loved, loved and, and cared for, but when I do, I'm denying that I am the definer of, of meaning, of life, existence, and the universe. And this is not to say that people who affirm that we are the custodians of the human life do not care for their neighbor. They often do. And they do so in ways that the church should admire, should appreciate, and should learn from. But strictly speaking, if we identify ourselves as the highest end, if we are the ones who define the meaning of existence, of the universe, and human life, then such love of the neighbor is completely optional. If we're the custodians of, of human life, we're free to define the neighbor as someone we should love, but we're also free to define the neighbor as someone who should be ignored. And whatever we say, ultimately it has no more weight than saying, this is a really good song, this is a really delicious meal. This is a really sublime waterfall. So sending our neighbor away empty-handed is totally in line with a faith in the self. 
that's not the kind of faith that James calls us to. James calls us to a faith that demands love and care for the neighbor. But what kind of faith doesn't objectify the neighbor? What kind of faith actually allows the neighbor to make a claim upon us? Well, it's the faith that saves. And this is the particular, this is the specific faith that James calls us to. Which brings us to the second point, the faith of receiving. How is it that the faith that James calls us to, how is it different than the faith in the self, the faith that casts the self as the highest end, the faith faith that affirms that we are the custodians of life's meaning? Let's look again at the Supreme uh, Supreme Court statement. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, as we've been going through this sermon, we should see an important contrast come to mind. Because James has twice talked about liberty, twice talked about freedom. He's called it the law of liberty, both in James 1.25 and James 2.12. And if we remember right, the notion of liberty there was the Greek word eleutheria. And in an earlier sermon, we looked at the work of philosopher D.C. Schindler, who talked about the ancient notion of eleutheria. And he called it the freedom of the flourishing of a nature. Quote, the notion of perfection or completion. And this is really important, right? Because when we look at the beginning of James, we find the following quote. James wishes this for his audience, that steadfastness would have its full effect and that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So eleutheria, the notion that that the notion of freedom that James here has in mind is the freedom to become all that God intends for us. It's to grow from the proverbial seed into the fully flourishing tree of Psalm 1. It's the freedom to be perfect and complete. And we also noted earlier that the word that James uses for perfect is teleoi. It's the same word that we get the English word telos, to speak as the perfection of something, the completed end, the realized purpose of a thing. And it's important to note that actually a form of of telos appears in this very passage. Look with me at James 2.21 through 22. James writes the following, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by his works. And interestingly, the word translated here, completed, is actually a a verbal form of the word teleoi. And what James is telling us is that somehow Abraham's faith found its telos, found its perfection, found its completion, found its intended end in offering Isaac upon the altar. It's also important to note that James here contrasts Abraham's faith with a faith that's useless. James uses the word useless to describe the opposite kind of faith in 2.20. And recall earlier we also talked about the word matthias, futility. James uses a different word here, arge, but both speak of worthlessness, of uselessness, of actions or things that go against God's intended purposes for them. To speak of a useless faith is to speak of a faith that works against God's intended purposes for the human being. 
But not so Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith fully accords with the human telos, with what God intends the human to be. But why? What is special about this account? How does it relate to faith here? Recall that faith that finds its end in the self believes the self to be the custodian of all life's meaning. But think about what that means. Think about, that, think about the disposition that that brings us to as we confront the world. If we are the source of meaning, then our basic disposition towards reality is to impose our will upon things, to impose upon everything that we see the particular meanings that we want for them. In many ways, it's a very violent picture of the human being in the world. We're not receiving anything from the outside. We are imposing our will upon anything and everyone. Nothing at all can make a claim upon us. We decide and we define what all things are, be they waterfalls or be they neighbors. We're free to make them absolutely anything we want. However, we find an opposite kind of faith in Abraham in his offering up of Isaac. And um, philosopher and theologian Eleanor Stump is particularly helpful here in her reading of the Abraham story. She speaks of this offering working in Abraham a particular kind of disposition toward God and toward all of created reality. Wherein Abraham comes to love God as his very greatest joy, but also he learns to love all of creation as a gift from God. Think about it. What is the one thing in all of creation that Abraham most deeply set his heart upon? It was his son. It was Isaac. He had waited patiently for years and years to receive Isaac. And now Abraham is called to offer up Isaac on the altar. In faith, Abraham follows the command. He puts Isaac upon the altar, but then a surprising thing happens. He receives Isaac back. Isaac is not killed. What happens is Isaac is, so to speak, re-received. Isaac was always and only a gift from God. But now Abraham fully recognizes him as such. Abraham had given back to God the one thing in creation that he most desired. And now he's received that very thing back in a whole new way. So in this offering, we find the true receiving. In offering Isaac upon the altar, Abraham truly and fully received his son as a gift from God. And this is a picture of the way that we are all called to receive gifts from God. As Eleanor Stump writes, quote, A person in this condition does desire those things on which she has set her heart, but she desires them as gifts from God, end quote. Implicit in faith is trust, and implicit in trust is receiving, and to receive is to receive all of these things as gifts from God according to his good and gracious purposes. And it's a very different disposition than imposing our meaning upon all things. We're not the custodians of life's meaning. So then are we, like Abraham, willing to put our greatest loves on the altar and receive them back in a new way to receive them wholly as gifts from God? 
Are we, for example, willing to put our jobs on the altar and receive them back, letting God define their meaning and their purpose? Are we willing to put our relationships on the altar? Are we ready to put our finances on the altar? Are we ready to put our sexuality on the altar? Are we willing to put our physical bodies on the altar? Are we willing to put our very selves on that altar, letting God define our very meaning and purpose? Because when we offer these things up, we truly receive them. When we offer these good gifts back to God, we truly and fully receive them as the good gifts that they are. Because the only other choice we have is to put them on the altar of ourself, where we define and determine exactly and precisely what they are. So in the end, as humans, we have two ultimate choices. We can impose our will upon the world and make it mean whatever we want it to mean, which is a very violent disposition to this beautiful world of creation that God has given us. Or we can receive absolutely all of it as a good creation from God. As James tells us in chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to follow Abraham? Are we willing to receive the meaning that God has for all things? Are we ready to receive the meanings that God has given us that lead us into the law of liberty, that help us to fight the futility that James warns us against again and again, the meanings that lead us to the proper telos, the proper perfection and completion of the human life, the meanings for everything that lead to our flourishing. And it's true, when we think about this, we talk about a particular telos, which means a particular kind of perfection, a particular kind of completion. And that means we have a particular kind of nature. When we think about the acorn, for example, there's one particular kind of perfection and completion for the acorn, namely the the oak tree. The perfection of the acorn is not the cactus. You cannot turn an acorn into a cactus however much you might try to impose your will upon it. When an acorn is perfected, it becomes an oak tree. And in the same way, God in his graciousness has given us a particular kind of perfection as humans, the kind that James lays out here. And yes, this limits us. This limits what we can do. But I want to argue that within these limits, we actually find a much more expansive view of the human than any other position can offer. Because when I say that I am the ultimate source of meaning, that is a very, very small world to live in. There's no meaning beyond myself. That's very, very constrictive. As poet Philip Appleman writes, quote, whatever we are, whatever we make of ourselves is all we will ever have. And that in its profound simplicity is the meaning of life. Now, however you might feel about that quote, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but please admit that it's a very small world. It's a very restricted existence. Contrast that with what C.S. Lewis says about the bigness of everything, about the generous capaciousness that God has gifted to the created world. Lewis writes, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
It is mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. And Lewis puts even more impetus upon our neighbor because he says each and every interaction we have with our neighbor is either leading them to become immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is a very big world, and it's a flourishing far beyond any meaning that you might want to impose upon the world. And to be sure, this is a very, very, very large view of our neighbor. But to receive this very big meaning, we have to trust God. And how is it that we come to know that we truly can trust God as a good and gracious giver? That brings us to our third and final point, the faith of being received. Again, the talk of faith is to talk of an ends and a mean, mean an ends and a means, a, uh, a what and a how. So to speak of, of saving faith again is to speak of a faith that finds its end in God, a faith that loves God more than absolutely anything else, a faith that has God as the object of greatest joy. And it's even saying that it's in enjoying God that we become most fully human. Remember that James himself echoes Psalm 1. He tells us that blessed are those who love God. And this love is more than mere acknowledgement that God exists. James cleverly points out that even the demons believe that God exists, but this knowledge leads them to shuddering. So saving faith is not merely knowing that God exists. Because to shudder at the knowledge of the existence of God is to resist God as the good and gracious creator and sustainer of all things. It's to shudder, to, to be led to revulsion, that God's meaning for all of reality precedes and preempts any meaning that you might hope to impose upon the world. But if God is the end, what is the means? And that brings us fact back to von Maastricht. To repeat the quote, we looked at earlier, no one can receive Christ as his mediator who has not previously received God as his highest end. So again, a saving faith, the faith that James calls us to, is a receiving trust that holds God as the ultimate end, as the what, and Christ as the means, the how, how we come to this good and gracious God. But we do have to look at something important here, the epistolary elephant in the room. Are Paul and James saying different things in their letters? Paul tells us that we're justified by faith alone. Paul tells us that we're counted righteous in God's sight by faith in Christ alone. Is James here telling us something different? On first glance, it might very well seem so. If we look at James 2.24, James asserts, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But as we look at this, it's important to keep something in mind. The scripture is not a theological textbook. Words will appear in scripture, and that doesn't mean they mean the exact same thing each time they appear. In a very real sense, meaning is used, and we have to look closely at the way that each word is used. When Paul speaks of works in his letters, he's speaking of our efforts to save ourselves apart from the work of Christ. But when James speaks of works, he's talking about the fruit of our salvation, the, the, the actions by which our faith plays out 
in our lives. When Paul speaks of justification, Paul speaks of a legal declaration of righteousness before God, holy reliant upon Christ. But when James speaks of justification, he speaks of the demonstration of the truth, of the genuineness, of the reality of our faith. And actually, Jesus himself uses justification in a way very similar to that of James. In both Matthew 11 and Luke 7, Jesus tells us that wisdom will be, quote, justified by her children. Wisdom will be proved true Wisdom will be demonstrated. Wisdom will be shown genuine by her children. James is telling us that good works flow from a genuine faith and actually show us that the faith is genuine. Absolutely, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Saving faith will always play itself out in good works. This is how saving faith plays out in community to the flourishing community that James calls us to. As, as one commentator puts it in explicitly medical terms, quote, Paul is dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how the Christian life grows and matures and ages. To be sure, Paul says the very same thing in other passages. In Philippians 1.6, Paul assures us that God, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Bring it to completion, using the very same language as James. Their messages are not at odds. They're just looking at different parts of the Christian faith, reminding us how full, how big our salvation is. But what does it mean to say that Christ is the how of our salvation, that he's the one that brings us to God? And this brings us to the two examples that James puts forward, the examples of Abraham and Rahab. James puts forward someone who has a lot of social capital, namely Abraham, and one who has very little social capital, one who's been subjected to the margins, namely Rahab. We have Abraham who has much in the eyes of the world, and we have Rahab who has very little. Yet James is telling us that saving faith comes to both, that both somehow, some way are, an, are on an equal footing before God. We find that the very patriarch of the Hebrew people and a Canaanite prostitute stand wholly equal before the great God of the universe. And the only way to make sense of this is faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that's not based on that particular person, on their actions, on their resources, on their status. But a faith that's wholly based upon Christ. That he himself bore the penalty that we deserve for imposing our meanings upon the the world. Meanings that flow from our own self-interest. Even imposing our very meanings upon our neighbor. The one we're called to love as ourselves. And Christ himself put himself upon the altar, the cross. And unlike Isaac, he died. He was killed. But Christ also is the one who lived the perfect life of love before both God and neighbor. He received absolutely all of creation as a gift. And there's a sense in which he received something even greater than Abraham on the altar. 
Because what Christ received back was a resurrected life. He received a life, a human life, free from death, free from corruption, holy, complete. This is the telos of who we are meant to be. And this gift that Christ receives of everlasting life, he promises that he will give that to us. He promises that his present is our very future. That he will give us the perfect life free from corruption, free from death, free from any futility. This is the flourishing that we absolutely have to look forward to. So faith in Christ is a faith that affirms both the patriarch and the prostitute, those whom society admires and those who society self-righteously despises, both the richest and the poorest. This is a faith that tells us that all of them, all of us stand empty before God, yet we all partake extravagantly of Christ's riches. Christ alone is the means, the how, the mediator of coming to God. Not our works, not our reputation, not our resources, not our social network. It doesn't matter if you're Rahab or Abraham or anyone in between. We stand before God wholly because of the work of Christ. And so faith in Christ is not just a receiving of all of creation as a gift from God. It's actually the faith that we ourselves have been received by God in Jesus Christ. So to have faith in Christ is to have faith that we receive all as a gift from God and that we in Christ have been received by God. This faith gives a particular meaning to your life. You, all of us, are the neediest of neighbors, wholly empty-handed before God. But he has given you everything. He has given you his very self in Jesus Christ. For Christ is both the means and the end, both the how and the what, both the perfect human who lived and died on our behalf, and very God of very God. So then, to work out this faith is to love and care for the neighbor in need. For before God, we all are that neighbor. To refuse or to reject the neighbor is to reject the very fabric of our faith. For the great God of the universe has stooped down to call sinners like ourselves his friends. James tells us that Abraham was called a friend of God. And in Christ, we too are called friends of God. How, the, how then can we withhold friendship from any neighbor that we meet? There are many calls in the modern milieu to love our neighbor. And if you take this call seriously, which I hope you do, please realize that nothing gives this call greater meaning than faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And please realize that this faith alone can save you. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you that you have met us as the neediest of neighbors, that you have not withheld anything, that you have given us your very self. Help us to rest in that. Help us to know that. Help, me, help us to receive and to be received by that.
And Father, from that faith, help us to move out in love to each and every neighbor we meet. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of your Spirit. Amen.